Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Mel Gibson's 2004 movie, The Passion of the Christ, opens in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, of course, praying that same night when he was going to be betrayed and arrested. And you can see right in the beginning of that movie, Jesus is in a physical and spiritual struggle. He is praying to his father about all of the suffering and death he knows that is waiting for him, but praying, of course, that his father's will would be done. And what's artistically interesting about this scene, even though this detail isn't necessarily in the Bible, is that Gibson decides to depict the devil as a shadowy type of person standing right there in the garden with Jesus, making this moment a showdown of sorts. The devil says to Jesus, Do you really believe that one man can bear the full burden of sin? No one can bear this burden. I tell you, it is far too heavy. Saving their souls is too costly. You see, in the movie, the, the devil is trying to tempt Jesus away from his path, away from his cross. And as the devil ramps up then his temptation, we see a, a snake, a serpent, creeping closer and closer to Jesus. But then suddenly Jesus stands, having prayed the Psalms and, and relying on his father's strength, and he lifts his heel and crushes the head of the serpent. And at that moment, the devil is gone, and Jesus turns, and he is ready to face those who are coming to arrest him. It's a very powerful moment right at the outset of the movie, one full of all sorts of imagery. But Mel Gibson is not the first to utilize this specific imagery of a serpent being crushed in various works of art. In fact, this symbolism of Jesus crushing the serpent's head has captivated artists' imaginations for centuries. We have numerous pieces of, of works of art from all different uh, ages. These are from the, the Middle Ages. It depicts Jesus at various stages of his life, from, from early in his life to later on, being struck by the serpent on his heel but Jesus at the same time crushing the serpent's head. And all of this imagery, of course, comes directly from the Bible. It goes all the way back to our Old Testament reading today from Genesis chapter 3. And, and it was there in a different garden, the Garden of Eden, that Scripture tells us of another showdown, this time between the devil disguised as a serpent and the people of God, Adam and Eve. And the devil is trying to tempt Adam and Eve away from their path, away from walking with their God to, to sin by eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Did God actually say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? You surely will not die. And so mankind fell into sin. And for the first time welcomed into this world death and destruction. And then God shows up, and he makes very clear what the consequences of their actions would be. But what's significant about this moment is that before God even addresses Adam and Eve, he also addresses the serpent. He addresses the serpent first. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." God is talking about the ongoing strife that would continue for generations between the devil and mankind. 
But God promises that there will be an offspring coming, actually one offspring. It's a singular noun there, meaning one particular descendant who will end the battle between mankind and the devil. And although the devil will strike him and harm this offspring of Eve, he will be the one who ultimately wins the victory by crushing his head. Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, is often called by many the Proto-Evangelium, that is, the first gospel. It's the first time when the promise of the Messiah is announced. It's only three chapters into the whole Bible. And this Messiah is coming, God says, to defeat the enemy who afflicts us. And what's amazing is that this is an immediate promise from God. God doesn't delay in declaring it. In fact, this promise from God was spoken before he even speaks the consequences for sin. In other words, before God declares the righteous judgment of their sin, God has already given to them the gospel. God has promised to them Jesus. Many people assume that we hear about Jesus for the first time once we get to the New Testament, but that's not true. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, he's all over the Old Testament. And according to Genesis, the first thing on his resume, the first thing God says that his Messiah is going to do is that he will be the one who fights and defeats the devil by crushing his head. And although the, fight, the, although the fight will be fierce, there will be a cost, a heavy cost. Jesus will ultimately be the champion. He will be our champion. I don't know if we always think of Jesus that way, do we? A fighting warrior? And the reason is, I think, is because we usually like to think of him, as Scripture says, as our good shepherd, right? Our peacefully leading us beside still waters. And that's true, of course. Jesus is our gentle friend. But we dare not forget nor assume that Jesus is also gentle toward our enemies. Enemies such as sin and death and the devil. Otherwise, if he were, we would be in a lot of trouble but no, what we see is that Jesus is fearsome toward our enemies. He is the one who is able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, and he crushes their head. And that would make Jesus, who is God, quite frightening to us as mortal human beings, except that he has declared to us that he is on our side. He fights for us. He is good toward us. Now, we don't always think of Jesus as the head-crushing warrior, but, but when we do, it actually helps explain so much in the Bible when we remember this. Because this picture of Jesus, which starts in Genesis, gets more fully painted and filled out throughout all of the Old Testament. And it's the book of Hebrews that reminds us that, that various people and places and things of the Old Testament, they are types and shadows of Christ himself. They were pointing forward to Jesus, preparing God's people for his arrival. And specifically, it's when certain people act in Christ-like ways, in saving ways in the Old Testament. We remember that they are saving God's people from particular enemies, and they are also pointing us forward toward the ultimate salvation that would come by the offspring of Eve. 
And this is particularly true when it comes to even violent acts and crushing the heads of enemies. Now, that may sound strange, but let me explain. For instance, in the book of Numbers, Balaam, as in Balaam and his donkey, prophesies that the star that comes from Jacob, the scepter that rises from Israel, will crush the forehead of Moab, which, of course, was one of those ancient enemies of the people of Israel. Or in the book of Judges, we hear about Jael, who herself was a Gentile and an unlikely ally of Israel. But, but one day, Sisera, the, the enemy general who had led his armies against Israel, was fleeing the battlefield after a defeat. And so he comes across Jael's tent and he sleeps there. And so Jael takes a hammer in one hand and a tent peg in the other. And Sisera was history. Probably the most famous person, of course, was David, who we know was a forerunner of Christ in many ways. He was a shepherd. He was the future king. And it was David who famously slings a stone into the forehead of the Philistine giant Goliath. And then the part that's usually left out of the kid's version is then he goes on to decapitate Goliath so that he can go around and show God's great victory on behalf of his people who had previously been so terrified of this Philistine. And so, yes, all of this is very graphic. I'm not advocating that necessarily all of those parts make it into the kids' Sunday school lessons, but... But we don't ignore it, and, and we also realize that this isn't violence. This is not violence just for violence's sake. Each of these people who are lowercase s saviors are all foreshadowing the one capital S savior who was to come. And as they were engaging in destroying God's enemies... Each of these victories then added a few more brushstrokes to the, to the painting of God's Messiah who was to come. And so as you read through the Old Testament, that picture becomes more and more clear so that when Jesus does arrive, God's people know what to expect. That there would be no question that God's promise that was made thousands of years earlier in Genesis chapter 3 was finally being fulfilled. That Jesus is God's answer to sin and death and the devil. And so when we do get to the Gospels in the New Testament, we more fully understand the battle that begins to take place. And this battle it wasn't just a one-time event for Jesus. This took place all during his life and ministry. For instance, it's in Revelation 12. It depicts the devil swooping down like a dragon at Jesus' birth, trying to devour God's son as he lay as a baby in Bethlehem. And so no doubt, I think that's pointing us towards uh, what King Herod was doing in trying to kill Jesus as a child and, and the devil having something to do with that. But Herod's and the devil's plans were thwarted by God and Jesus emerged victorious. But the battle raged on. This morning, we heard about Jesus' battle and, and his victory over the devil in the wilderness during his temptation. Or it was all during Jesus' ministry that the devil and his demons were ramping things up. They were pushing back against Jesus through demon-possessed people. But, but time and time again, they had no choice but to flee from Jesus just at Jesus' power of his spoken word. And so the devil regrouped, Luke's gospel tells us, until an opportune time, until one final assault that the devil was going to make, which would take place during Holy Week. 
And that was when the devil fought to take control of of Peter, to sift him like wheat, but Jesus refrained him. When the devil did take control of Judas, when the devil used corrupt religious leaders and godless Romans, and they ended Jesus' life. And from everything that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane to the arrest and trial of Jesus to his beatings and torture to the crucifixion and death of the Son of God, we can see all of this clearly for what it is. It is the devil sinking deep his fangs into the heel of the offspring of Eve. And for a moment, actually for three days, it appears as if the devil has done indeed great damage. As the commander of the heavenly armies, the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of army host, truly and actually died. But this is what God said would happen in Genesis chapter 3. And in reality, what the devil was doing was simply signing his own death certificate. Because the heel that he struck marked the heel that would strike him down. And so like the star of Jacob that crushes the forehead of Moab, like the tent peg that is driven down by hammer blows, like the stone that is fired from the sling, down comes the heel of Jesus onto the head of the serpent who first hissed his lies in Eden, but whose lies and whose life was now silenced by the champion of God. At the cross of Jesus Christ, God's promises from from Genesis chapter 3 and all of his promises from the Old Testament were fulfilled. The war was over, God declared, and our great and ancient enemy was defeated once for all. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why did Jesus do all of this? Well, the reason is that Jesus did it for you. You know that you could stand no chance against the devil or his might. You know that you cannot overcome your own sin or the wages of your sin, which is death. That's why God had to win the victory for you. And it's why God shares in in graphic detail this fierce battle, which had been raging since our fall into sin. But God shares with you this history so that you may know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is victorious. And since you have been made one with Jesus, you also are victorious. Our opening hymn, A Mighty Fortress, put it this way. No strength of ours can match the devil's might. We would be lost and rejected. But now a champion comes to fight whom God himself elected. You may ask who this may be. The Lord of hosts is he. Christ Jesus, mighty Lord, God's only son adored. He holds the field victorious. And you see, this is the image of Jesus that we need to remember in those moments in our lives when we find ourselves facing our ancient enemies of of sin and of death and of the devil, we do not want in that moment a gentle Jesus, a Jesus who is gentle toward our enemies. Jesus is gentle toward us, but, but in that moment we need a fierce Jesus who wins the battle. And that's exactly what scripture delivers to us. 
Jesus has won the battle. And we know that by his death and resurrection, he has completed the fight. The war is decided. It is over. Our sin is defeated in his forgiveness. Our death is defeated in his life. Our enemy, the devil, is defeated, head crushed by Jesus' triumph over all of his lies and all of his deception. For a short time, even though these enemies are defeated, sin, death, and the devil, they do remain And they seem at times to have the upper hand. People in this world who do not have a faith in Jesus, they're they're always running in fear, always trying to overcome their own sin, always trying to avoid or diminish the thought of death. They are trying to ignore the devil as if he doesn't exist. But a Christian, we don't need to do that. We know that these are our foes. But we know that because of Jesus, these foes have no power over us. Sin has no power over you. Death has no power over you. The devil has no power over you. And so that means you can approach your days here on earth in glad confidence. You can say, sin, you think you can drag me down into despair? Be gone. Jesus has forgiven my sins. He has defeated you. Death, you think you can frighten me? Be gone. Jesus has overcome you when he was raised from the dead, and I will be raised also. And the devil, you think you can whisper your lies into my ears? You think you can accuse me of my sin, convincing me that God can't love me? Be gone. One little word can subdue you. The word liar. And Jesus has crushed his head. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God gives you this confidence. The world may at times seem like a scary or devolving place, and it really does sometimes, but we also know that we have nothing to fear. We know despite what it may look like out there that the victory has been won. And so we are patiently waiting for that day when all will see it, when sin and death and the devil will be no more. And also, until that day, we stay busy. We stay busy joyfully bringing the good news that the battle is over, that the war has been won. And we get to point people back to the cross and to the empty tomb and to tell them that because of Jesus, the kingdom is ours forever. In his name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.